0: Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast making the business case for conservation of our ocean. I'm Mina Epps, the head of IUCN Ocean Program, and I'm standing in for Dorothy Hare for the final episode of our second season. After covering various interesting topics like blue bonds, the high seas, blue-green infrastructure, and the important role of women in ocean conservation, it is time we ask some big questions. What is really happening at the global level to make the changes we need to see? Are governments taking definitive action or simply blowing hot air? Today, we are talking to high-level guests about some key actions taken in the ocean conservation and finance space in 2022, as well as the next steps for the world to make the necessary investment happen. Today, I'm joined by three powerhouse voices working
1: towards protecting the ocean. I'm David Cooper. I'm the acting executive secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity.
2: My name is Mousson Damumba, and I'm the secretary general of the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, based in Glon, Switzerland.
3: I'm Olivier Poirardavor, the special envoy for the ocean of the French president of the Republic, Emmanuel Macron, and I'm also the ambassador for polar and maritime issues.
0: Last December, the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, or the CBD, held its 15th conference in Montreal. The outcome was the adoption of a Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. It's a historic achievement and the boldest set of targets yet on protecting our planet. The most tangible of these targets is to protect at least 30% of the world's land, coastal areas and seas. So I spoke to David Cooper, the CBD's acting executive secretary, about what the new framework might mean for the ocean. Hello, David. Uh, Welcome.
1: Very nice to be with you, Mina. Um, I'm very happy to join you for this podcast.
0: Excellent. Please let me start by congratulating you and the CBD Secretariat and uh, for the major milestone that was a historical moment that was achieved in, in Montreal in December. It was the Global Biodiversity Framework that was adopted. Could you tell me a little bit about what is the Global Biodiversity Framework?
1: Yes, certainly. The Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework was adopted, as you said, in COP15 in December, after several years of negotiations among parties, but also with the involvement of all sectors of society, from civil society, businesses, local governments, local communities, and indigenous peoples. And it provides essentially an outcome, an action-oriented framework for action across Society across government, focusing on the next seven years to 2030, but also with longer term goals for 2050. We think it's an ambitious framework. If you look at the goals of, for example, reducing extinction rates by a a factor of 10, by an order of magnitude, by 2050, and by 2030 turning the corner on biodiversity loss. So we need to reduce biodiversity loss, we need to halt biodiversity loss, we need to reverse biodiversity loss, so that we're on an upward trend before 2030. And then there are a whole series of targets aimed at achieving that.
0: But excellent. I mean, ambition is good. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit? How does it relate to the ocean and protecting the ocean and halting extinction of, of marine species?
1: Most of the framework, I would say, relates to the ocean. Um, There's been a lot of focus, of course, on the 30 by 30 target, as it's been known, uh, the target to protect 30% of lands, waters, and oceans by 2030 through protected areas or through other effective conservation measures, and to do so in a way that those areas will be representative and that the protected areas will be well managed and with the full involvement uh, of indigenous peoples and local communities and respecting their rights. But that target really should be seen alongside the others in the framework, and particularly, for example, targets one and two. The first target looks at spatial planning, so in this context, marine spatial planning, We need to protect 30%, yes, but we also need to make sure that the other 70% is managed sustainably. We also have another 30 by 30 target essentially, which is uh, the target to restore degraded ecosystems, including marine ecosystems, including um, systems such as coral reefs, seagrasses, mangroves, but also oceanic systems that are degraded again by 2030. And then there's a whole range of other targets that look at other drivers of biodiversity loss, invasive alien species, pollution. We know that these are also having major impacts on the ocean today. So there's a whole range of targets that I think we should look at together.
0: How would this be achieved? I mean, who is going to implement these targets?
1: short answer is everyone, but of course it's governments that have to take the lead and have the first responsibility in setting policies, in providing the incentives, and in enabling action then by all the other actors from business to local communities. And one, I think, really important factor in this new framework is the emphasis on not only engaging all those different actors, but recognising their rights and protecting their rights. And this, I think, particularly applies to Indigenous peoples and and local communities who have often demonstrated, actually, that if their rights are, are respected, their rights over territories, their rights over resources, including resources such as fishery resources, then they can manage those resources quite well. There's a whole... set of targets that talk about aligning policies with the values of biodiversity and the values that biodiversity provides to people. There's targets about businesses recognizing their dependencies on biodiversity and their impacts on biodiversity so that they can reduce their negative impacts. And also targets that aim at everyone in terms of consumption and consumption patterns so we can encourage more sustainable consumption choices. So these underlying drivers of biodiversity loss need to be addressed too.
0: I like that really talking about incentivizing and aligning policies according to kind of values of biodiversity. I I like that. And you also mentioned reducing, you know, negative impacts. But I presume it's also about creating positive, um, so kind of a nature positive economies and societies in in, in this respect. So we have this very ambitious agenda. What about mobilizing resources? I presume a lot of resources need to be mobilized. And um, also a new trust fund for the global biodiversity frameworks was established. So I mean, could you tell us a little bit about what are your hopes for for funding in order to reach these targets?
1: Indeed, the discussions uh, in Montreal on finance, on resource mobilisation, were perhaps the most difficult, uh, the last to be resolved. But I think we have in the global biodiversity framework itself, but also in other decisions that the parties took in Montreal on resource mobilisation, advances in in biodiversity finance beyond anything that we've achieved before in the convention. So firstly, in the uh, Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework itself, in Target 19, we have targets to uh, mobilise from all sources 200 billion per year uh, by 2030. And then specifically looking at aid from developed to developing countries, specific targets to mobilise 20 billion by 2025, and 30 billion by 2030. And this front-loading of that target, if you like, the early increases is important given the urgency of action and the urgency of mobilizing resources to support that action. And this amounts to at least a doubling by 2025 of, of present uh, international finance and tripling by 20. 30. But there are other elements of that target that are also important in terms of mobilizing domestic resources, leveraging private finance, and this is backed up by a strategy for resource mobilization. The decision on on resource mobilization also established a new advisory committee on finance, and this will enable further work on resource mobilization to flesh out that strategy for resource mobilization to see how those other sources of funding from public and private sectors can be mobilized. And if I can just mention a couple of other aspects that I think are really important, one is another target, target 18, that looks at reducing and reforming subsidies. Because mobilizing new resources for biodiversity actions, for conservation actions, is really important and essential. But unless we also reduce the negative financial flows that we have at the moment, which are an order of magnitude greater, then we're not going to see the results that we want. So we're calling in that framework for the reduction of subsidies, of perverse subsidies, that is subsidies that are harmful to biodiversity, by at least $500 billion per year by 2030. And that complements other targets which call for alignment of financial flows in line with the values of biodiversity more more generally, for instance.
0: I guess that's very key when it comes to um, fishery subsidies to really make sure that we kind of face out, eliminate those harmful uh, subsidies for fisheries. When you talk about 200 billion a year that we need. Is there any discussions in terms of how to divide that? Is there anything to say, well, I know 70% of the planet is, you know, the ocean, but, you know, how much of that would be allocated? Or is there any discussions of how much would go to kind of the target or related to the marine realm, if you like? Are there any such discussions? or?
1: So we haven't had specific discussions uh, in the Negotiations on that topic. We do know that the oceans are underfunded, but we also know that many of the actions that happen on land at the moment are also causing problems for the oceans. So we also look, need to look at this in the whole. If we can reduce land-based pollution, particularly from domestic waste, from industrial waste and from agricultural runoff of agricultural fertilisers, for instance, we would greatly reduce eutrophication and and that additional pressure it puts on coastal systems, uh, in particular coral reefs and other, other coastal systems. So it's important to look at these funding streams in the whole and I think in terms of, you know, how that's divided up, we also can look at the contributions from the public sector, including domestic expenditure. So the more countries recognize the value of protecting biodiversity and of the ecosystem services that that biodiversity provides, the more domestic resources can be mobilized to. And, of course, private finance. And the requirement now for companies, particularly large and transnational companies, to disclose their dependencies on biodiversity, that's very obvious with some industries such as fisheries, but also their impacts on biodiversity, then hopefully that will drive investment towards more sustainable choices in those various industries. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you so much. That was really, really rich. Um, You know, obviously having the linkages between uh, land and sea, and we know what we need to do to restore ocean health, right? We need to remove the threats, build resilience and enhance recovery. David, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us and and sharing with us.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Mina, and uh, good luck with the, the series.
0: As David says... It is incredibly important to recognize the interconnectedness between different ecosystems and nowhere is the more relevant than at the interface between land and sea in wetland habitats around the world. We have a convention on wetlands adopted in the Iranian city of Ramsar in 1971. Since then, almost 90% of UN member states from all over the world have become contracting parties. That's why my next guest is Dr. Musonda Mumba, Secretary General of the Convention of Wetlands, also known as Ramsar. Good to speak with you, Musonda. Pleasure
2: to have you with us. Thank you so much. Absolute honor to be on your amazing podcast. Excellent. Well, congratulations
0: to you. I mean, you're the newly appointed Secretary General for the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands. Could you tell us a little bit of what that is and the significance of the wetlands?
2: No, thank you so much. Um, Yes, I I started my tenure in October of 2022, and it's been absolutely an honor. So we are the oldest multilateral environmental entity in the world. And, you know, climate change, biodiversity and land coming into, you know, 20 years later. So in essence, this is the convention that talks about all things related to wetlands These wetland systems vary from high altitude mountain areas all the way to the sea in beautiful spaces in the form of coral reefs. And their manifestation is the bird life that people see first, before they even see the fish, etc. And I want to speak to something that a lot of people may be familiar with. Last year in the news, there was news of a bird, a black-tailed godwit, that basically migrated all the way from Alaska, nonstop to Tasmania, 13,500 kilometers, wings open, going. Now, what's interesting is for a bird to make that journey, it will need to be resident in a specific wetland system, eat some fish, maybe some algae, but make sure that it feeds up enough food reserves in its wings and its stomach and its body and enough protein, and in essence, that wetland ecosystem has to be a good and resilient and healthy system, not one that's full of plastic. So all this to say that these are spaces that are very critical and are very important and are very good indicators of change. When they dry, we begin to see that there's less birds showing up, there's less amphibians, there's less fish, because they're also connected to our food systems. They're connected, I mean, for all intents and purposes. The most well-known wetland food is rice, rice paddies, you know, rice grows in wetlands. So this is what our convention does. And our convention is really about raising the visibility and the importance of these very vulnerable, fragile and important ecosystems that are very much intimately connected to our very livelihood as humans. And I think that really speaks to, it sounds like
0: nature-based solutions to really tackle some of the environmental and societal challenges that we see. So could you perhaps share maybe some nature-based solution successes that you have seen in the wetland space and possibly where business and investment capital has also played an active part?
2: No, absolutely. So here in the Alps, for example, in 1998, the Convention on Wetlands went into a partnership with Evian. Water And the Danone company, that is a French company, and they have the Avian water, which comes from a town called Avian in France. And really what Danone wanted to do was to say, look, our very primary business of bottled water is affected by our sources. And these sources happen to be wetlands and they happen to be um, these beautiful spaces in the Alps. But what Danone also did was to even go further and say, we do have a stakeholdership, of course, but we also want to tell our stakeholders that we're going to reinvest some of these monies into nature-based solutions. So when I came on board last year, it was amazing because we had the conference of the parties, the 14th conference of the parties in Wuhan and also here in Geneva. And Danone gave five amazing awards, all worth 10,000 euros. And one of them was really amazing. This young lady called um, Fernanda Samuel from Angola has been restoring a degraded mangrove system just outside of Luanda, the capital of Angola. Young woman who has mobilized, in fact, risked her life, because loads of developers want to develop this seafront, but it's heavily degraded. They've cleared the mangrove system. And she made an argument to her community and mobilized youth voices and said, look, I want people to understand that this mangrove system is important for the business, but also important socially for the community and also for our environment, because when storms hit and we have storm surges, etc., We're cushioned and buffered by a very healthy mangrove system. The other example that I'd like to give, a a more recent one, is really amazing. The East Asia Australasian Flyway is the world's largest flyway. Now, a flyway is where birds migrate in one way and path. And, you know, birds coming from as far as north, north of China all the way further up to the islands in the Pacific. Now, we recently got a partnership with the Asia Development Bank. Multilateral development banks are now beginning to think, how can they actively finance nature? And not just, you know, for ticking the boxes. And, and I think this is where the importance lies. So Asia Development Bank is now supporting this flyway um, secretariat. And really, for all intents and purposes, this Asian flyway has over 50 million birds flying over cities like Kuala Lumpur flying over cities like Delhi, flying over cities like Beijing. And birds, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, birds are kind of just looking at where am I going to, where's my watering point? Where am I going to stop and hang out with my friends and just have some fish? And unfortunately, what we're seeing is even in cities, these wetland spaces have shrunk. So what the Asia Development Bank is now doing has given this investment injection to really demonstrate how businesses can play an active role in providing nature-based solutions.
0: We often talk about scaling, you know, scaling up projects. How can these wetland projects be scaled up so they attract larger investors? I mean, you talked a little bit about multilateral development banks, but in general, what can we do to scale these projects up?
2: I mean, listen, I recently visited Mexico and I was in the Americas and what I didn't realize is that the reef system that you see from Belize, um, in fact, Costa Rica going up all the way into the Yucatan Peninsula, is the world's second largest living reef system. But one of the things that was very evident and, and something I had to converse with, the you know, respective governments in the region was to say, look, a turtle that's migrating, um, for instance, from the Bay of Veracruz in in Mexico, doesn't know where the border lies or where the it's going to give birth in the Caribbean and then it returns to nest or feed um, on the Mexican side. So the element of connectivity is a very important element. And this is something that has been very much evidenced within the Convention on Biodiversity with a global biodiversity framework. How do we make sure that there is no fragmentation of ecosystems? And where they're fragmented, we put in good policies to restore. And where they're degraded, there's good investment. So, And this is also the role of our convention. We convene the governments together to have a conversation. So, for example, we have countries in the Caribbean right now who had monies uh, from the German government to look at climate change and wetlands in the Caribbean. Because in the Caribbean, as you very well know, Um, all these island systems are interconnected. So the element of scale is an important factor. And lastly, but not the least, um, we also have to talk about investments in water, for example. You cannot talk about portable water without talking about wetland systems because wetland systems are very good for filtering. You know, when you open a tap, you have to think, where exactly is my water coming from? It's not just in the pipe this water is coming from an ecosystem, from a natural space. And so getting investors to begin to think about how can they invest in big water catchment reserve areas? How can we start thinking about the kind of development that you're doing? And going back to multilateral development banks, a rethink now in what were those very perverse and problematic incentives that historically they would invest in And what some of these debt arrangements are causing on nature. So I think there's people have come to the table and not only are they at the table, I think there's a lot of action now where we're having open conversation and then in comes the digital space and young people. I think that for all intents and purposes, young people have become very vocal about what they see, sharing on social media and also just challenging certain investments that happen in their communities because they're worried about the kind of planet they're inheriting. And this, for me, is an important element to see that this amplification of voices is also connected to project developments and also the scale at which, you know, investments can be done. And
0: for all the investors out there that are listening, what would you want them to know about Wetlands projects and the developers behind them?
2: You know, what's really interesting and what's exciting is that our convention obviously is now a bit of a, a mature convention. You know, we're over 50 and we're coming midpoint to the Agenda 2030. We've got less than seven years before the end of of 2030, And I really want to speak to this. And so what we're seeing is big conversations on the table. And one of the things uh, as part of my vision as the new Secretary General is to talk about the element of planetary health. What lessons can we draw from, for instance, the COVID pandemic, the COVID pandemic was so problematic and showed that already the world really went back to 2008 poverty levels. And then we've seen this dynamic of, um, you know, in recession in some parts and, you know, people wondering whether they should invest their resources and their money. I think this is the moment where we begin to also have introspection and reflection to see, okay, we have a planetary crisis at hand. Look what happened to the rivers last year here in Europe, the Loire, the Po in Italy, and the Rhine. They dried. Parts of the rivers dried. Now that also begins to ask the question, "Where do you as financiers reinvest your resources? And there is no wrong investment but the investment of nature, because nature is what makes a good business sense. Nature is what makes a good social sense, and it also what makes a good environmental case. And so what we've seen is we're seeing a shift in the wind, a change. And very soon, and I saw you very much actively involved in the biodiversity uh, treaty that just came through, that has been negotiated for over 20 years. I mean, come on, we need to work much quicker because nature can be very unforgiving. So, um, and, and in, in about 10 days time, we're going to be meeting in New York for the UN Water Conference. So we're beginning to see intersectionality and connectivities and pieces of the puzzles coming together. So I see that financiers need to invest especially in the tourism sector, to make sure that tourism sector makes sense. Because when we talk about mangrove systems, for example, the connectivity between land and sea, we see that sometimes, you know, understanding nature or understanding the kind of building and materials, investments in infrastructure. I think now more than ever, we need a lot more innovation, a shift in technologies and also really rethinking because we have lost a lot of amazing biodiversity. We cannot afford to lose more. And just really, lastly, but not the least, I mean, the big discussion that will be happening for World Environment Day is the issue talking about plastics. This is a fossil product that shows up mostly, if not mainly, in wetlands because then transient. So we begin to see the data showing that within a few years' time, we're going to be seeing more plastics than fish in the sea. I don't want that for my children, to be honest with you. This is not the world that I want to see for my children. I want certain kind of investments and policy shifts happening in the kind of technologies that are put in making materials that are nature-friendly and not destructive to nature. And so I'm really excited um, to see the changes, but there's a lot more that needs to be done and can be done by businesses. And that's exciting.
0: Indeed. Finally, where do you think conservation finance needs to go in order to achieve the Agenda 2030 that you spoke about?
2: I think conservation finance also always needs to know at the center of our work and at the center of conservation are people. And for me, this is also where the rubber hits the road. Because a lot of times we're talking about some of these spaces and showing beautiful fluffy animals. And I remember when many, many years ago when I worked for WWF, you know, we, we were struggling to make a case for conservation finance. And a lot of times it was, oh, you know, do I just fund the elephant and not fund, but We forgot to talk about elements of wildlife-human conflict dynamics. So it's beginning to rethink and say that the pressure points right now are also within the social side of the three pillars of sustainability. And so conservation finance has a window of opportunity, but also bringing all the key stakeholders to the table for people to understand the role and importance of Indigenous peoples, for example, that 5% that protect the 80%. And also the role and importance of youth voices within this financing mechanism. I was following very closely the conversations that were happening in Luxembourg just a few days ago around, you know, financing for nature, et cetera. These conversations have also continued in spaces like the Global 20, the G20, and it will be happening also for the G7 discussions in Hiroshima in Japan very soon. So conservation finance is so critical in bringing together the intersectionality of constituencies but also the centrality of people in being the change makers of the dynamics, not just within the boardrooms, but also in these sites where we're trying to conserve the very nature that also gives us the services that we need as humans. Thank you very, very much, Masunda. You're very welcome.
0: Musanda mentioned the recently agreed Treaty on Biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction for conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity, also known as the High Seas Treaty. Pending formal adoption and ratification, but it is another historical achievement, an internationally legally binding treaty to protect two-thirds of the ocean and to ensure sustainable use of its resources. To finish, let's get a national perspective on some of these global issues and talk to France, a country that has been leading the charge in several areas of ocean conservation. I spoke to Ambassador Olivier Poivre-D'Arvore, France's special envoy for the ocean, appointed by President Emmanuel Macron. Very pleased to have you with us, Olivier.
3: Great pleasure to speak with you, Mina.
0: If we Start by looking back at last year, it was really named to be the Year of the Ocean. Could you try to highlight in your or in, in France's view, what was the, the biggest achievement last year in terms of advancing the ocean conservation agenda?
3: No, you are right. 2022 was really uh, an excellent year. We can remember some highlights from the uh, UNFCCC in Sheikh, uh, but... I would say that the CBD process in Montreal was a surprise for everybody because, you know, as you know, it was in Montreal and I was so, so amazed and happy to see that the member of states were able to agree on the 30 by 2030 agreement. So that was great. UNOC 2 also was a great moment for the maritime community to meet again after these two, three years of COVID. And so it gave us uh, the impetus uh, for the next year, for this year, the Blue Carbon Coalition and work also with the IPBC was great. And if it is not because I was the organizer of the One Nation Summit in Brest, but that was important in February. And uh, I will say that Peter Thompson, also the Special Envoy for the Ocean of the SG of the UN, was great also. And it was a great moment. And uh, the um, Brest uh, commitments are still um, working and we're working on that. And uh, it's what Give us the idea of going forward, and, and um, perhaps we will speak about the next uh, UNOC conference.
0: Yes, excellent. So, really, that was the year of it increased attention on the ocean, and you also talk about this great momentum. Can you tell us a little bit of France' actions or any specific initiative in the blue space that's on the way?
3: We, oui. um, I can I glad that, that my country has rather high climate and biodiversity. Disclosure's law, for example, the new decree under uh, uh, Article 29 of the French law on energy and climate states that French financial institutions are now required to disclose both biodiversity and climate related risks and impacts as a new decree from the French financial regulator is being published in the coming weeks. So, uh, for example, during the One Ocean Summit organized in, in France in February 2022, the uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development joined the European Bank of Investment and the French, uh, I think the German as well, in Italian and Spanish development banks in order to create a, something like four or five billion dollars investment plan for the Clean Ocean Initiative which aims at reducing plastic pollution at sea.
0: Yes, indeed. There are many, many threats and challenges to tackle. Is there some kind of collective action that's needed or missing to not only realise the importance, but really to significantly advance the ocean conservation agenda? Is there some kind of collective action that you see could help advance this?
3: There are so many collective action we, we need, but the, it's very primordial that blue finance and blue economy become main points on the international agenda for the sake of the humanity. And some topics on which it should focus are blue carbon, definitely, and coastal conservation. I, indeed, these topics are the core of the ocean climate nexus, blue carbon for carbon storage and coastal preservation for ecosystem And habitat health. This issue, even though they are of course not the only ones, have a key role in climate regulation which scientific experts keep proving is the most prominent crisis in our society. So it is extremely imperative that governments show the way for what I would call a sustainable, responsible conception of the ocean and invest directly in projects that have a positive impact on the biogeochemical processes of the ocean.
0: Certainly very important. Uh, We often talk about the finance conservation gap, and certainly there is a large gap when it comes to ocean finance uh, finance and conservation. Would you have any key, um, let's say, takeaway messages or wishes to the finance sector and also to the ocean conservation community? Do you have a specific ask there uh, or a wish that we'd like to put forward?
3: Asking them to invest and to invest and to work together and for that we probably need uh, to have, um, I would say perhaps the uh, next UNOC uh, three will be the occasion to to put them together at the same table and uh, we need money for the ocean, more money uh, It's uh, as you know the SDG uh, 14 is underfinanced compared to the other one. So um uh, It's easy to be virtuous the ocean, but without any uh, any money, it will means nothing. So, uh, I do insist, and I hope this the next UNOC uh, edition in two thousand and twenty five will be the occasion to have this um, common uh, and global goal for finance and economy, blue economy.
0: And so, France together with Costa Rica will be hosting the next, the third United Nations Ocean Conference. So some of the things that you've been talking about here today, would that be a primary focus of the next UN Ocean Conference? Or how would you see if we fast forward to 2025?
3: No, uh, as you know, the the UN Conference is is a new one uh, compared to the COP for climate or biodiversity, which started 20 or 40 years ago. It's it's brand new. uh, It's only the the second edition in, in, uh, in Lisbon, from New York and and Nice in uh, 25. So first, we are very excited to do that and to co-host that with Costa Rica because we have a lot to learn from Costa Rica, whether in, it is in terms of management of biodiversity or the creation of MPS in the Pacific. So we have been working with them for a long time. Uh, we launched the Coalition for Nature and People and. Uh, and we have been working now for four months uh, to prepare the resolution for the uh, next uh, UNOC. Our expectations for UNOC 25 um, are truly ambitious because we are free, we are French, so Mr Macron wants to do for, for the ocean in 25 what will have been done for the climate in 2015 with the COP21, so a turning point. We want to create a hub for all ocean actors from science, and the conference itself will start with a three days forum with a lot of scientists, I think like 3,000 from all over the world, from science to civil society, including governance, the maritime sectors, blue finance actors, uh, the ocean tech community, to gather and to discuss together all that we can to do to ensure SDG 14 is being achieved and even more so we want the UNOC to be a moment where the oceans the climate and biodiversity represented equally in the nexus they mutually create we want this conference to be the occasion to have cross sectoral conversation and to be a moment of decision decision and engagement for decision makers around the globe in favor of uh, uh, an environmental ocean government. That will be, as uh, we speak about the Paris Agreement for Climate, we like to, let's say, to speak about the Nice Agreements. We we really expect a lot and we have time because we have started to work uh, a few months uh, ago and we still have two years to meet all together, the 5th of June in um, in la côte d'Azur, hein, nearby by la promenade des Anglais, Nice, where you are. Expected, Mina and all of you. <laughs>
0: Definitely. Thank you so much. It seems like the partnership with Costa Rica was an obvious one, uh, giving you a track record of a collaboration. So that's really great. And to see that you have such an ambitious agenda from creating hubs and really to focus on the science and getting it to civil society. And I agree. I think this is a very new forum and it's really growing the momentum. And, you know, I think, in this nice we all come together really to talk about biodiversity protection and climate action for the planet. And uh, yes, we all look forward to the world coming together in Nice and we'll have a nice ocean agreement to play on words. So uh, best of luck for that. And thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. Let's be nice to the ocean.
0: A big thanks to David Cooper, Musanda Mumba, and Olivier poivre d'Arvor. That's it for season two of this podcast. We've talked, listened, and learned with you about topics from the front lines of blue finance and investment. We travel from the boardrooms to the nuts and bolts of projects on the ground. In season three, expect equally compelling stories alongside voices from the traditional guardians of blue nature. Please subscribe or follow so that you can get notified as soon as it launches. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. I'd like to thank the producer, Phil Sansom, assisted by Anthony Hobson, and a special thanks to Dorothy Herr for hosting this podcast. To find out more about the subject, visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Thank you for listening.